This is To The Point with Marcus Amick, where we cut through all the noise to discuss the things driving the world of automotive sales and service. Let's get to it. To The Point is brought to you by RockEd, the automotive industry's leading performance and engagement platform. To learn more about how RockEd helps you turn training into profitability, visit us at rocked.us. That's R-O-C-K-E-D dot U-S. Google Automotive Retail, and you'll find dozens, if not hundreds of resources offering insight on the future of the business. But that really isn't a big surprise. Given the current state of the automotive industry, assessing what auto retail looks like down the road has become a major point of discussion. Be it the transition to electric vehicles or finding more innovative ways to recruit, train, and retain talent, Automotive retail, by just about every account, is at one of its most pivotal crossroads in the history of the business. And among a growing number of books on this topic, one in particular has emerged as a vital go-to resource for preparing dealerships for this monumental shift. It's a book titled The Future of Automotive Retail, written by Steve Greenfield, the CEO and founder of the investment and insight company, Automotive Ventures. Hi, Steve. Thank you for joining us on To The Point. It's great to be here, Marcus. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Steve, I got to say, that this the book is really groundbreaking in terms of, of the insight that it provides on the industry. Um, what prompted you to write the book? It's a good question, you know. So I, I've now been in automotive for about 22 years, and I think um, there are re- really two things. So one was, um, um, you know, having worked now for years or decades with dealers, I empathize that they're sort of in this 30-day uh, cycle. So it's always like rush to the end of the month, sell as many cars as possible, get get as much service done as possible, and then you know you reset the first of the month and you start again. And um, you know, talking to dealer owners, I really think that um, there's a challenge um, taking your head out of the day-to-day operations because of those cycles and looking at the horizon um, with all of the changes coming. And then t- two is, you know, th- there's a lot of really good sources of information in automotive, but I find everything is 500 word or less sound bites, and, and no one goes into the depth needed to really explore some of these issues and trends that are emerging. So I think that the two of those um, um, combined really led me to, well, one question why a book like this hadn't been written. And then when I explored it, it wasn't. I was like, I I think I need to start to collect and provide a point of view on what the next five to 10 years might look like for the the automotive retail channel, OEMs and dealers and consumers, because because of those two facts. And... um, Hey, it took a while to pull it all together, but hopefully now that we've got it out there, we, uh, we you know, uh, had, had some really good feedback. And the challenge will be, you know, this thing's going to get effectively need to get rewritten every 18 months because things are changing so quickly. Right. You, you, you cite a wealth of, of resources in the book. Um, and given given how the industry is changing so rapidly, uh, has there been anything that you have unearthed sort of doing the research for the book? that has surprised you, even with all of your experience in the business? 
Yeah, I, I think so. I think that the, the, the main thing is that there's, there's always two sides to every story, right? So, yes, for example, there's a huge push right now from the, the government and even from consumer demand for EVs. But as you peel back the layers of that, there's a lot of issues, right? The, the, the raw uh, costs of building batteries are increasing. There are questions about what are we going to do with these things at end of life? And, uh, you know, you can't just throw them in, the, in, a, in a landfill. So are we going to be re, re, able to reclaim some of the... Um, the, the battery components and recycle them or reuse them in so, some manner. Um, and then there's consumer receptivity. Like, you know, there, there are still challenges with consumers around range, anxiety, charger availability and speed of charging. So I think, you know, for every single item, every single trend, there are, you know, headwinds and tailwinds and thus different perspectives from folks about what adoption will actually look like. So that's the challenge. So you, know, you end up writing a book like this and you end up with more questions than answers, which I think is okay, because through the process, you, you, you kind of expose what those questions are. But it's really hard anytime you're writing a book about the future, trying to take a firm stance on what will actually uh, play out in the next five or 10 years, because you do end up with more questions than answers. Yeah, I guess that's that's just the nature of, of a book that's, you know, intended to look at how things are changing. Right. Exactly right. Um, you, 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 you focus a lot on the Amazon business model in the book. Um, why do you see Amazon as such a pivotal piece of the puzzle when it comes to the future of auto retail? Well, I so, so broadly, you know, Amazon, Jeff Bezos at Amazon has set consumer expectations around you know convenience and i think i call it the convenience economy in in the, in the book but um you know th this has cascaded into uh, automotive specifically with covid uh, when many dealers couldn't couldn't sell through their physical stores for months and i think that uh you know we, we've seen amazon transform a number of different categories now as they've grown over time the interesting um, um, consumer experience on Amazon is that all of us, and now there are 167 million Amazon Prime customers in the U.S., all of us uh, 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 trade off uh, convenience for tr price exploration, uh, pr price discovery. So it's really hard now if you go on and look for any particular item on Amazon um, to tr try to uh, be convinced that you've got the lowest price. Um, we all love the fact that items, Amazon Prime items, will end up in our driveway or on our front doorstep the next morning. But um, Amazon sort of obfuscates the ability to find the best price on purpose. And I think there's a lot of hope then, you know, as we look at retailing of vehicles in the future, that consumers may be much more focused on ensuring that they have convenience as opposed to trying to negotiate the best price. So while we come out of COVID and many of the OEMs are talking about a new paradigm where every single new car will sell at MSRP, there is hope. The other thing with Amazon is because they have reset expectations, I think it's getting harder and harder to keep up with consumer expectations in the automotive category. You look at Carvana, I mean, Carvana, as much as you know, they've taken a lot of blows this year and there's questions at this point whether or not it'll be a viable business model going forward, Carvana, you know, thought about how might they take an Amazon-esque experience and apply it to, to used car shopping for consumers. Tesla did the same for new cars and tried to make it as easy as possible for a consumer to uh, configure and order a new car. So I think that uh, the, the, the average rank and file dealers now have to look at this and say, wow, consumer expectations have been reset upwards and they're expecting a lot more. And I, I need to be able to meet those expectations 
and only by the dealers working with the OEMs are they going to be able to meet those expectations to make sure that they can continue to differentiate around the consumer experience into the future. What is um what is the Carvana's current sort of state, if you will, say about this idea that there needs to be disruption in the industry? Because you you also talk about this idea of, of being disruptive in the industry. Yeah, so Carvana is the prototypical case of disruption. If you look at the Super Bowl ads that were very anti-dealer, and I think that um, at this point, like I said, it's to be determined whether it's going to be a viable business model going forward. They've definitely been pummeled and took on about $3 billion of high-yield debt earlier this year to um, take, you know, acquire the Edessa physical um, auction assets. And as a result of that and um, you know, the, the, the softness in used cars and valuations plummeting, I think, uh, and interest rates increasing, it's been you know, a quadruple whammy to, to Carvana overall. And it's taken a lot of the, the, um, the wind out of their sales in terms of market capitalization. And right now, I mean, it does look like there's gonna be huge challenges and the, 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 the debt holders are going to band together and try to restructure the company. I, I would assume that will happen in the next quarter or two. But, um, but yeah, back to your question. I mean, disruption can cut both ways, right? Disruption, if executed well, can be hugely um, 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 challenging to the incumbent businesses. In this case, I mean, I think there's a lot of dealers that are on the sidelines cheering for Carvana's demise because they, they, they have challenged the status quo. They have challenged the dealer model overall. But um, uh, make no doubts. I mean, there will be another Carvana. Whether Carvana survives and you know arises from the, these ashes and comes back stronger than ever, um, you know, I think Pandora's box has been opened. And uh, there'll be other companies that come out and try to provide a dramatically better consumer experience. And uh, the, the dealers have to up their game to be able to meet any disruptors into the future. You mentioned uh, Lith Lithium Motors as well. Um, do you see them sort of potentially falling in the same state of, of Carvana? Or are, is their approach different where you see it being more of a sustainable disruption in the space? Yeah, so so great, great, great question. You know, Lithia is sort of, I guess you could say that they're disrupting from within. You know, they they are sort of in the process of what appears to be rebranding to their driveway.com brand. If you look at their investor relationship site site now, the the Lithia logo is up there beside the driveway uh, brand. And um, you know, they, they they've been very aggressive, probably the most aggressive of any of the groups, saying that they want to get to 500 stores and be within uh, 50 or 100 miles of 95% of the US population to offer them potentially driveway delivery of both new and used vehicles across every brand. So they're, they're filling out sort of the map right now with the brands that they need and the geographies they need to be able to fulfill that. And I think that um, you know, Lithia would even be differentiated from Carvana being able to offer new cars and used cars driveway delivery to any consumer in the US. And you know, all, all dealers need to be paying attention because if Lithia is able to transform into this new brand, this driveway.com brand, and start spending significant advertising dollars against that, the average dealer is going to be competing against Lithia or, or driveway.com 
and um, they, they will be offering new, new car deliveries across the U.S. So I think it's a very interesting uh, case study of not not a, an external party coming into the space, but an external internal party. And you know, Lithia, as of this year, will be the largest retailer of new cars, so they'll be the number one dealer in America. Really disrupting themselves by saying, "Look, you know, we need to stake our claim on being the disruptor, make this shift from analog to digital." And also think about like what is the best experience being you know driveway delivery of both new and used cars to every single consumer in America. You know when, when you when you when I hear you talk about this this disruption and sort of this this image that you paint of the the single dealership operator, it, it, it seems to to suggest that it's a pretty gloomy uh, future for the single operator. Is that true? Is it that gloomy? That's a good question. And I get asked this all, all, all you know, uh, very often from dealership owners now in terms of like, the question is usually positioned as how big do I need to be to ensure that I'm diversified and that I can survive? And, uh, you know, I think that um, if you've got one store, you, you are um, relying on the relationship with the, the manufacturer. So let's use a couple of examples, right? So if I've got a single Toyota store or a single Honda store, Toyota, Honda, for example, are, are known to be very dealer centric and dealer friendly. It's not likely that the, the OEMs in those cases are going to you know, really turn the screws to their um, deal, uh, dealers. And so you probably are, are as long as you're in a, a good thriving geography where the population's increasing, uh, and you've got an OEM that's going to look out for your best interests and kind of protect your local market and ensure that you've got enough market share and volume coming through your stores and not do anything to sell direct and try to bypass you. I think you're probably in pretty good shape. Now, if you're an OEM uh, under one of the legacy domestic manufacturers and you're in a small rural area and you don't do a lot of volume and, and the manufacturer may be looking at you and saying, this is not really a strategic location for us. Uh, the, the local population may be st stable or shrinking. I think in those cases, it's going to be a, a rougher and rougher road unless you've got the diversification and scale of having multiple dealerships. There, there is definitely um, un undisputed uh, opportunities to, you know, add dealerships and increase sort of like the scale of your operation and take out costs on the back end and find efficiencies through marketing and uh, so software vendor negotiations, et cetera. And I think we, we see uh, definitively that the larger operations are more efficient in terms of their cost structures. Um, so if you are a single point, you need to really rely on, you know, again, all, all the things that I mentioned, the relationship with the OEM, uh, the strength of your local market, and hopefully it's a growing local market, and being a, a very shrewd and progressive operator to make sure that you really protect your investment. You know, you you these factors you outline um, that that this single operator needs to be mindful of. Um, there's a lot there. I mean, there are a lot of factors there that the single operator can't necessarily control. If if a single operator is looking at these factors now and saying that there, are, I don't know if I can get a grasp of all of these these variables and these factors. Some of them that you know clearly are out of the single operator's hands. Should the single operator be thinking now about getting out of the business? Yeah, it's it's a it's a great question. You know, and everybody should be exploring that at least annually to say, you know, are all of these changes daunting enough that it's time to go? 
they, that's compounded. If you look at the what they call the buy-sell activity, the physical dealerships that have turned over from owner, owner to owner over the last two years, we've had you know two record years now in a row. And for every buyer, there has to be a seller. And I think to your point, Marcus, I mean, a lot of folks are saying that may, maybe now is the time to get out. Even if I'm a multi-generation owner and, you know, my intention was to pass it on to the next generation. You've got, you know, a couple of years of the highest profit ever in dealership history compounded by the highest valuations ever. And when you multiply those two together, two, together you, you, you get these very high valuations for dealerships right now. In an environment where you've got you know natural buyers like we mentioned lithia earlier that seem to have a voracious appetite to continue to add stores it's been a very healthy buy sell environment and i think a lot of single point owners multi-generation single point owners are have and are taking the opportunity to get out now while the going's good um, anticipating that things could get harder into the future um when you Talk about Lithia again and, and sort of going back to Carvana and this idea of being a disruptor. One of the things that you, you highlight in the book is this idea that that the sustainability of the business as it transforms um, can't solely rely on the idea of disruption. Can you elaborate on that? Well, yeah, I mean, disruption is, I think, a dangerous word because it, it uh, implies, you know, leapfrogging the current state into something dramatically different. And I think that, um, you know, how I wrap the book is really the, the, the amazing resiliency of this dealership model. And, and we look at sort of a, a bird's eye view of a dealership and say a dealership isn't one P&L or profit and loss. You know, it's like up to 10 different departments that are operating all interrelated, but operating within one physical dealership location. You know, you've got used cars sales, you've got new car sales, you've got the F&I office, you've got parts and service and accessories and collision, you know, and, and there will be new departments in the future. I, I'm certain that we'll be selling software subscriptions to existing vehicles in the future and dealers will be playing a healthy role in that. So as we look at that over the last 20 years, the revenue and the profitability driven by these diff different departments has, has evolved quite dramatically. Uh, you know, pre-internet, a, a lot of the margin was on the front end of the new and used car sale. And if we look at the importance of front end margin as, as they've gotten squeezed on both new and used vehicles and dealers reallocating people and resources to F&I and parts and service, it's been dramatic over the last 20, 25 years. I think that that will continue. But the resiliency of the, the business model has been amazing because dealers have the option to reallocate um, their, their, their uh, resources across different departments and thus continue to drive good revenue and profitability, healthy profitability. So circling back to your question, you know, I, I think for the, the average dealer, it isn't so much about huge leapfrogs in terms of disruption, but being continuing to be very resilient and innovative to make sure the business model evolves so they, they continue to be very resilient and continue to squeeze out good profit margins. Is there um I'm going to I'm going to ask you probably one of the toughest questions that I've I've asked you. All right, lay it on me. Lay it on. <laughs> well, I, because in in the thick of all of this, um the question that comes to mind for me is like how do you if you if I were to ask you and I'm going to ask you, how do you pinpoint the biggest challenge for the single operator now? Like what's the biggest challenge because you've outlined a number of them? Yep. 
Um, so I, I, I would kind of sum it up as just continuing to be relevant. I think relevancy is something you need to think about. So relevant in the mind of the consumer. Why, why is a consumer going to choose to buy from you? Why is a consumer going to choose to service from you? Uh, relevancy with your employees, relevancy with your, your OEM too, having that relationship with the manufacturer that you, you want to be on their short list of preferred uh, locations, dealer locations. So I think that, that's the challenge. A, a lot stems from that, you know, relevancy in terms of your consumer experience. So what is a consumer experience in the digital realm, your website, et cetera, how you advertise? What's the relevancy to the consumer when they walk in the door and, you know, walk into service? And how, how do you think very from a consumer centric point of view, how, how do you want to continue to be relevant to those consumers that want to buy your brand or own your brand and want to service with you? I think that's really what, what everything else can focus from. You know, relevancy can mean, co you know, co cost reductions. Relevancy can be how do I eke out one more car sale to someone by being relevant. But I think that relevancy is something that dealers should be obsessed with. In, in, in closing, Steve, how, how do you see all of the things that you sort of touch on in the book impacting how new vehicles need to be marketed to consumers moving forward? Yeah, that's a very good question. So, you know, my observations over the last 22 years in the industry were, you know, the, 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 the advertising dollars, no matter the category, outside of automotive, inside of automotive, the advertising dollars have to chase where the consumers are. And the, the consumers have changed dramatically since the beginning of the internet. They first flocked online, and now they're, they flock to more social media applications as opposed to back in the day, it was as easy as you know, uh, um, Google or Yahoo or whatever it was, was a dominant search engine. And then the, the third party sites, we had all the consumers across those portals. Now we've got consumers that are on TikTok and you know, first Facebook and then TikTok and who knows whatever is next. But I think the, the, the important thing for you when you're advertising is to focus on how do I get a, an engaged consumer at the lowest price possible, right? So which should manifest as bringing down your cost per car sold over time or, or service if you're focused on fixed operations. So that should be the metric that rules them all. How do I uh, drive a car sale or a service activity at the lowest cost possible? But there's a lot to unpack in that, right? Where, where do I find the consumers? How do I track those consumers? What's the medium and, and what's the message? to get them to come to either my website or walk into my store. And I think it's going to continue to evolve over time simply because those consumer eyeballs are going to continue to evolve they, the, the way they consume media. And wherever they're consuming media, the, the advertisers will follow. And then you're going to have to make sure that the, the message is relevant to the consumer based on the medium that they're consuming. So obviously the message you and I would promote into Facebook would be different than into TikTok that would be different into a Google search engine. But I think if you focus on, you know, spending your advertising dollars in ways that are effective, driving down your cost per, per event, car sold or service event over time, and think really like where are consumers today and what is their mindset when they're in those experiences to make sure you're, you're, you're delivering the right a message to the right consumer at the right moment to get them to take the action, to click or whatever it might be. Because um, I think all of that is like almost gets uh, um, redefined every couple of years as consumers continue to evolve and migrate into new mediums. Wow. It's a lot to unpack, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's tough. I mean, I, I, I empathize with car dealers because the, 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 the media cycle and all of these these things are hitting so so quickly now, right? That it only seems to be accelerating all of these changes. And like I said, where we started the conversation today, you know, um, having the opportunity to, to take your to look towards the horizon and out of the day-to-day -day operations is, is a luxury that a lot of the others just don't have the time for. Wow, wow. Well, thanks again, Steve, and um, I look forward to your next book. Yeah, I'm about halfway through the next one, which will be The Future of Mobility, uh, but probably got you know six to nine months left on that one to do it justice. Well, definitely keep us posted. We, we'd love to get you back for that one as well. Well, thanks, Marcus. It's always a pleasure catching up, and thanks for making time for me today. Now, back to the noise.